the media landscape in America is busted. Americans are on to the omissions, the half-truths, and the outright lies being propagated against we, the people. Your host, Tom Harris, will bring you the other side of the story. I have a real treat for our listeners at America Out Loud today. I have Dr. John McLean as my guest. He's from Australia. He's been extracting and analyzing climate data since 2005. He was an expert reviewer of the IPCC's 2013 Climate Assessment Report. And John made the most comments of any reviewer of the second draft of Working Group 1, which of course focuses on the scientific basis of that report. He was also expert reviewer of the second order draft of Working Group 1, that component of the IPCC Assessment Report 6, which is the most recent one. Dr. John McLean conducted and published in 2018 the first ever audit of what's called the HADCRUT4 temperature data set used by the IPCC and others. And I'll ask John to define what that actually is so that listeners can know. The audit identified more than 70 problems with the data that governments willingly accepted without thorough checking. John was awarded his PhD by James Cook University Townsville, Australia in 2017. And it's interesting that the supervisors for, for his PhD were two people I know, and I've actually, you know, done lots of work with Bob Carter. He was the first one, Professor Bob Carter, and Dr. Peter Ridd, who you might know because of his studies of the Great Barrier Reef. Dr. Ridd was a guest also on this program. John has been the author of four peer-reviewed papers on climate matters and a book about atmospheric physics for people interested in climate change. And we'll link to all of that uh, under the podcast when it goes up on Monday. He maintains that theories and opinions about scientific matters should take second place to what observations and data show, to which I wholeheartedly agree. Obviously, you want to do what's in the real world, not just in the theory. So, John, welcome to the show. Hi, Tom. Good to be here. Yeah, great. Now, to get started, can you tell us how you got started working in the climate field, specifically the temperature record auditing? Well, Tom, my background is in IT. I've been working in computers for probably 30 years or more, and I uh, decided to explore some, some of the climate data one day. I found it was a little bit different to what we've been told. And oh, from yeah. there, I just kept exploring more and more data. And I found that uh, doing it this way, I didn't have to rely on what someone else was telling me about the data because I could see it for myself. I could analyze it and draw my own conclusions. And if my analysis um, involves some sort of process, when I talk about these things or write about them, I try to explain what I've done so that other people can check my work. And not every climate scientist yeah. seems to do that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the whole point of science. We're supposed to have review and checking and trying to find mistakes. I mean, one of the things that I find strange is that the, maybe not strange because they're trying to hide mistakes, is they constantly say, we're not going to share data with you because we don't want you to prove us wrong. But I mean, isn't that the point of science? You're supposed to try to prove them wrong. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, it, science should be open. People should be checking it. The, the, I think one problem we have with science these days is that people get all the kudos for this new thing they've discovered. No one gets any mm -hmm. praise for confirming that that was correct. Mm -hmm. This is what science is missing out on. We need that confirmation. We're not getting it. And perhaps we're not getting it because a lot of times it just well, would fail. You know, it's interesting. I think it was Dr. Ridd who was telling me in our interview that 
One of the problems is that the peer review process is unpaid and scientists have to somehow squeeze it into their schedule. And so they really whip through these papers pretty quick. I mean, do you think maybe we should start paying people to do peer review? It's tough, Tom, because now there are so many universities demanding that students at a high level for masters or PhDs produce uh, papers and get them published. So this mm-hmm. meant an explosion of papers and a lot more work for people who do peer review. I know my daughter who works in another field, she keeps getting papers that uh, she's asked to review. And it takes time away from what she would normally be doing. I think the universities would be doing everybody a favour to cut back on the number of papers they expect people to uh, produce. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the problems, you know, it's interesting. I started my PhD. I never finished. I did all the coursework and my focus was on teaching. I really wanted to be a teacher in the university. But the chairman of the department that I was in, which was mechanical engineering, he said, you know, you could be the best teacher in the university, but if you're not pumping out papers, you won't get tenure and you won't survive in this profession. So he said, so do you really want to focus hard on pumping out paper after paper after paper? And I said, well, I could do it sometimes, but I really want to focus on teaching. And he said, no, no, then you're in the wrong profession. So, I mean, it sounds to me like that is one of the problems, is that the pressure to publish is so strong. (laughs) That's right. And there's just so many journals now. Journals um, Probably new journals appear every week. And somebody should be reviewing the papers that are published in those journals. The peer review started off as just a, um, uh, if you like, a bit of a check for the publisher. Publisher uh-huh. might have known his science, but he didn't know all the fields and didn't know them in detail. So he got his friends to, who did know those subjects to have a look at them and give an opinion. And that's mm-hmm. kind of expanded. But the problem with review is that a reviewer can endorse a paper that agrees with his own work, or he can try to denigrate a paper that doesn't. Yeah. So there's, yeah, it's open to abuse. The whole system, it's just got ridiculous. So it sounds like at this point it would be healthy for the public to be as skeptical of scientific papers as they are of the media. Would you say that's true? I think that's um, a very good comment. Um, There are just too many papers being produced now that cannot be replicated. The people say Mm -hmm. what they did, but when someone else tries to do it, they are not getting the same answers. The the figure is something ridiculous. Um, I think in medicine... I thought I saw a figure of over 40% of published papers cannot be replicated. <laughs> Jeez. So essentially they're wrong. <laughs> um, so yes, they're, they're wrong and no one should give those papers any credibility and certainly shouldn't be doing things like basing government policies on what those papers found. Yeah, yeah. And it sounds to me like your background in IT would be really important for this kind of auditing. Yes, yeah, it it has been because I write my computer programs to pull apart the data to see what it's really saying. Mm -hmm. Or I might think of something like uh, with the temperature data, are there any values below minus 50? I write a program (laughs) to tell me all of those mean monthly temperatures that were minus 50. Now, some in the Arctic are okay. We'd accept that during winter in the Arctic or Antarctic. Yeah. But when they're happening in Romania, which is in Central Europe, I think it, was a, <laughs> it wasn't quite minus 50, it was minus 42. That was in September, oh. so about the end of summer. So it doesn't I mean, sound like the IPCC audit the work very closely themselves. Well, the, in one of my review comments to the IPCC was to ask them if they audited the data. 
And the response was, uh-huh. oh, no, we don't have time to do that. And it's all voluntary work by <laughs> IPCC authors. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's such an incredible catastrophe. We don't have time to do any check. We just have to take action. <laughs> this is ridiculous. But also, Tom, the, the people who create these data sets, they obviously don't do much auditing themselves. Or they would mm-hmm. have fixed these problems. Yeah. Yeah. I heard a story that when the Soviet Union collapsed, suddenly it got much warmer in northern Russia. And apparently what happened was the scientists who were based in the north would get extra bonuses when it was below a certain temperature. And when the Soviet Union collapsed, the whole system kind of collapsed. So suddenly they weren't getting bonuses anymore for having super low temperatures. So all the temperatures rose probably to what was real. (laughs) Gee, talk about magic. Yes. Uh, Yeah, exactly. All I have to do is have the Soviet Union collapse and Russia's not as cold now. (laughs) It's crazy. Now, you're quite well known. Mark Morano did a really great video uh, on your auditing of the HAT CRUT 4 temperature record. So first of all, can you tell us what is H-A-D-C-R-U-T 4, HAD CRUT 4? What is that? Okay, the HAD CRUT 4 data was a composite data set of temperatures around the world. There were two parts of it. One is the temperature over land, which is CRU-TEM4, C-R-U, comes from Climatic Research Unit. This is at the University of East Anglia um, in the UK. So they look after the temperatures over land. And there's another group at the Hadley Centre, which is part of the UK Met Office, that look after the sea surface temperature data. And they create a data set called HAD-SST. You have these two data sets which are structured identically, and then they are merged to produce the HADCRUT4, which is a combination of Hadley and the CRU. And this was the fourth version of that data. Mind you, with every previous version, we were told that the version was accurate, but uh, mm. yeah, we were told that about four as well. Okay, so HADCRUT was actually a combination of sea surface and land surface temperature. Uh, Yes, and what we see at the end is the anomaly, that is the difference between a a mean monthly temperature, average temperature over the month, compared to a baseline temperature, baseline average. And that baseline average is 1961 Mm -hmm. to 1990. NASA's GIS group created a similar data set, but they use a different baseline. They were using 1951 to 1980. Oh, sorry, they take the average between those two years and that's the baseline? That's the baseline that they calculate the anomalies from. So what we're seeing at the end is usually a a plot or a a graph, or they'll talk about the temperature is one degree warmer. And this is in relation to the baseline and how um, the average global anomaly has changed over time. Mm -hmm. That's where the two come from. So now... Why is it important? I mean, who uses this information? Well, the IPCC uses this information quite a bit. I think the very first version of the HADCRUP data was created specifically for the IPCC because it didn't have high-quality data from around the world. Mm-hmm. So the, uh, this was put together. The IPCC was using it. And you go back to reports from... Uh, IPCC report five, right back to one, they talk a lot about the HADCRUP data, whichever version they're using at the time. Uh-huh. So, yeah, they've, they've relied on it heavily, and governments and government authorities have all nicely copied the graphs and said this is what the data is showing. 
So it was used an awful lot around the world. Yeah, it's super important that it be right because they're basing trillion-dollar decisions on a lot of this, right? Absolutely, which is mm-hmm. makes it even more unbelievable that I was the first person to actually audit that data. I mean, what have governments <laughs> been said- doing? They've just been swallowing the story for years and never checked the data. Yeah. And, and I understand you actually found there were a problem or two in the database. <laughs> oh, yeah. There were more than 70 problems. Some of them might have affected only one or two values or maybe one value. But some would impact a whole lot more, like an entire weather station or even a whole mm. country, depending on how it was doing its processing. And some of them, I, I think, probably impacted most of the data that we have. Wow. So you mean complete countries could have bogus data? in the database. Well, Tom, we have this funny situation where with summertime, one country might have summertime and just across the border, the other country doesn't. So if you have a weather station just either side of the border, one is saying this was the temperature at nine o'clock, this was the maximum and minimum temperature at nine o'clock my time. The other one is saying this is the minimum and maximum nine o'clock my time over this side. And they're actually talking about two different times of the day because one had shifted to summertime and one didn't. Oh, wow. Wow. So just really stupid mistakes like you'd see in an elementary school kid. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, what else did you find like about sea surface temperature? I mean, how good was that? Well, sea surface temperature is interesting because they can measure it lots of different ways. They can take a bucket of water as close to the surface as they can, but it's hard to judge. Uh, then they haul it up on ship and they put a thermometer in the water to measure it. Or maybe they'll measure it with mm. the engine intake, which is a the pipe coming in from the side of the ship with seawater, which goes through a similar to a car radiator, but it cools down the engine. The engine coolant is circulating with that radiator. They measure that temperature coming in on the engine intake. That was only typically once a day, but but this was down, oh, it, it could be a couple of metres below the surface of the water. So that mm. it could be six mm. feet or more down from the top of the water. Now, sometimes the method they were using to measure it wasn't recorded. Okay. And yet all this data is adjusted to try to bring it to the same base and say, if it was all measured by this method, this is what you would be getting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, should it be a certain depth? It's just a baseline they try to use to try to make everything equal. Mm-hmm. But let's face it, they're only estimating what temperature they would have measured, but they don't know in some cases. Well, so you know, it's a- funny because they're giving the answers, like the averages, they're giving them to hundredths of a degree. And I mean, how, how realistic is that? I mean, what's the error bar, let's say, on the surface or, or the ocean surface temperatures? I mean, it must be a lot more than a hundredth of a degree. Individually, it is. Then they'll take the average. Um, yes, there is an error margin there. It is quite a large margin. With this sea surface temperature, they don't know how it was measured. They make a guess. Mm. The, the latest version of the, the Hadcroft data, sea surface temperature component, they make 200 guesses oh, yeah. at what, what was happening for these ones where they don't know how it was measured. Mm. And they calculate all those, and then they take what's called the median value, which is to say they get all the values that they uh, for one month of the whole time and they'll go through it and sort them into order and then they take the middle one or if there's two of them they'll average those two middle values 
There's yeah. no reason why that's correct. It might be one of the extremes, but we just don't know. Well, yeah, exactly. And, and you know, averaging versus a mode versus a median. I mean, how do you actually determine what your number should be? I, well, I don't know why they use the median. I, in fact, calculated it using the mean, and I found almost no difference to the median, so I don't know why they bothered. <laughs> Jeez. Now, so, you were saying that there are 70 problem areas. and Could you tell us about, let's say, four of the big ones? That would be kind of interesting to hear, just so people get an kind of an example besides the ones you've already brought up. Okay, the, the Hancock 4 temperature data set starts in 1850. So it's supposedly every month from January 1850 onwards. From January 1850 to June 1853, in the Southern Hemisphere, there was only one weather station reporting temperature data. And mm -hmm. that was in Indonesia, I think it was. And at the end of the decade, there were only 10 weather stations reporting data for the whole Southern Hemisphere. <laughs> that was in the Hadcrut 4 data. The Hadcrut 5 data now doesn't provide any data for the Southern Hemisphere for the first few years. Gee, I wonder why that is. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, when we're comparing temperature changes today versus that time, we don't really know what the average is at all for that time. No, we don't know what the average was. Tom, a lot of the Northern Hemisphere data over land came out of Europe at that time and some on the east coast of the US. Now, the problem is that Europe was just recovering from a little ice age at that time. And Europe and this, in fact, across the North Atlantic over to the US, it's only about 10% of the Northern Hemisphere, 10 or 14%, something around that figure. But at times it was providing up to 75% of the temperature data for the whole northern hemisphere. So okay, really so that's where, I, I'd like to say that again. 75% of the data came from 10% of the area. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, or 10 or just over 10% of the area. Now, <laughs> this is crazy, especially with the little ice age. So it's going to be skewed towards what was happening in Europe. Yeah, um, for sure. And that situation, that continued right through until at least the 1890s. So it was still a, a, a very high proportion of the data was coming out of Europe. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's just crazy. I basically disregard the, the data from 1850 to 1900. I think it's rubbish. We, we shouldn't trust mm -hmm. it at all. Um, and in fact, the coverage globally, we didn't even get 50% of the world until 1905. And that's mm -hmm. according to the methods that they, that the Hedcut 4 people use to calculate the coverage. Well, you know, John, even today, NASA says that a region is covered if it's within 1,200 kilometers of a sensing station. Now, 1,200 kilometers, that's the distance from Ottawa to South Carolina. I mean, that's huge. And the, the climates are totally different. So, I mean, even today, if they're saying a 1,200 kilometer difference, I mean, that surely they should be a lot tighter than that. Uh, what they're doing, Tom, is they're saying, oh, this is the relationship between the data at these two places that we can see when we've got data from both of them. Therefore, that relationship is going to continue. Hmm. This is the kind of argument they use. I agree with you. It's not terribly valid at all because you get a place on the coast. Coastal places, the temperature doesn't vary as much as they do inland. So how you relate um, a location on the coast, the, the data from a weather station on the coast to somewhere much further inland, 
I'm not quite sure. And these things don't come down to single figures anyway. I looked mm -hmm. at one place here in Australia when they moved a weather station, well, they set up a new weather station, still ran the old one in parallel for a while, and it wasn't a perfectly straight line that said at the old weather station it's this and at the new weather station it's always this. They varied quite a bit. So it's mm -hmm. difficult, that kind of relationship, and yet they yeah. um, assume they can calculate it. Yeah. Can you give us another example of the errors that you found? I know you found some that were literally impossible, that they just didn't even notice it in the database. Oh, yes. Yeah. So, sometimes the um, mean monthly temperatures were just ridiculous. I, I mentioned earlier, I think it was a minus 42 in Romania. In September. <laughs> in September. And I was finding temperatures like 84 and 86 degrees in a station in Colombia. In a particular month. You're talking about Celsius? Well, the problem <laughs> was those figures, if you think about it, those figures were in Fahrenheit. Oh, okay. They put everything else in the data, in the whole um, set of data is in Celsius. And even other data from that same weather station was in Celsius. But these <laughs> ones went through in Fahrenheit and were ridiculous and they weren't picked up in the processing. I mean, I, I just couldn't believe that they. Let them get so away they with were, that. Um, they were just thrown into the averaging process without making the conversion. Is that what you think happened? I, th I think that's what happened. Now, some of the data would have been filtered out because they had a method of doing it. They, they calculate the average across a certain period of time, and they calculate what's called the standard deviation, which is a measure mm -hmm. by how much things vary. But the problem was the bad data was in these periods that they were using to calculate these values. So it was screwing everything up, and one station I found had a standard deviation of 20 degrees. Yeah. And what they were doing was excluding something which is more than five standard deviations away from the average, which means it could have been a hundred almost 100 degrees away from the average, and it still would have been accepted. And it would have gone into the averaging process. It would have gone into the averaging process and found its way right through the system. It was wow, just that's amazing. Well, you know, Mark Morano did a video about your work. Are you okay with that video? Because I'd like to put it up under the podcast for people to get like a four-minute snap uh, example of, of what you're finding. Yes, I, I thought Mark did um, quite a good job of some of the major points of it. Um, yeah. As I said, the, I found more than 70 problems, but Mark has picked out um, some of the major ones. And yeah, yeah. Uh, that's good. Yeah, I think Mark, uh, more people should have a look at Mark's video to get some idea of um, what these problems were and just how ridiculous some of the values yeah. were in the system that the IPCC happily used and governments just, um, just accepted, didn't think about. Yeah. Now, how have the HADCRIT and UN people reacted to your findings? Did they correct them or remove bogus data or fix the ways that they're collecting and reporting data? I mean, how have they reacted? Have they corrected it all so we can be confident that it's right now? Well, when my audit first came out, a journalist in Australia contacted the Hadley Centre in the UK, the, the people responsible for the sea surface temperature data, and they basically said, thank you, we'll take a look at it and get back to you, and they never did. And the people responsible for the land temperatures didn't say anything. There's absolute silence from them. But just before the last IPCC report came out just a year or two ago, New versions of both data sets 
suddenly appeared with some of the problems corrected, but not all of them. So, um, yeah. How much confidence so, put them in Hadcrit 5? Oh, it's, it's still got problems in it. Um, the problem mm-hmm. that I mentioned before of coverage is a problem that not only Hadcrit 5 will have, but every temperature data set. It doesn't matter who puts it together. Because it's the mm-hmm. Hadley people, the people in the UK, or the NASA GIS people, we just don't have the data. And they, mm-hmm. they're trying to pretend that we do. They're, they're trying to pretend it doesn't matter. But, um, yeah, we, we just don't have it. Well, and, you know, they're constantly saying we can't have an increase of 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. So they're actually putting a lot of faith in these models and in the data that they have because they're saying we're at 1.2. So they're talking about three-tenths of a degree rise will be catastrophic. So this is really important that they get it right because, I mean, we're talking about only a third of a degree C will supposedly be a catastrophe, according to them. But you're saying, do they even really know that it's gone at 1.2 degrees? I mean, how accurate would you put, what kind of error bar would you put on that 1.2? Tom, I don't for a moment believe 1.2 or whatever. I just don't think they can calculate it. They certainly don't Uh calculate the average temperature. And if they're talking proper pre-industrial, that was 1750. And in 1750, there were just three weather stations reporting data. Uh, three around the world. Three. three for the whole world. The whole Where world. Where were they located? One was at Debilt in the Netherlands. Uh-huh. One was at Uppsala in Sweden, and one was in Berlin. And that's all in Europe, and they're all in the Little Ice Age at the time. Yeah. So for the whole world, those are supposed to represent the temperature. <laughs> well, it, it's funny because in I, the fifth IPCC report, they talked of pre-industrial being 1850 to 1900. Uh-huh. Sometimes they would say 1850 to 1900 is indicative of pre-industrial. But mm. my reaction was, how on earth would they know? There were only three weather stations earlier. Yeah, yeah. That's really, it's quite amazing then. that They are basing trillion-dollar policies, when you add it all up, on what is effectively information they don't have. That's about it, yes. Yes, Tom. In the very first IPCC report, they were saying even then that it was uh, close to one degree temperature difference from pre-industrial. This mm-hmm. first report came out about not early 1990, and they didn't even have deep, they were nowhere near as advanced. This was version one of the Hadcrut temperature mm-hmm. data. I, I think this is one of the climate myths that have grown up. <laughs> There's so many myths about climate, and this, I think, is just one of them. Yeah. We have to go for a break now. After the break, I'd like to ask you about your experience as an expert reviewer for the IPCC. Is that okay? Yes, that'd be great. Love to tell you about it. Okay. Okay, stay tuned. I'll be right back with Dr. John McLean, who's actually been extracting and analyzing climate data since 2005, and he was an expert reviewer on a couple of the IPCC reports. So we're going to get into what his experiences were with those review processes. Okay, stay tuned after the break. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the wellness company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best. 
Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Cofix RX nasal solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flu, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, and sleep deep. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code out loud. You wouldn't go a day without brushing your teeth or washing your hands. What about washing your nose? I mean, your nose does filter the air you breathe. Air loaded with bacteria, viruses, and irritants. Make nasal hygiene part of your routine with Clear. No messy bottles to fill. No drowning sensation. Clear is a natural drug-free saline with the added benefit of xylitol, which blocks bacterial and viral adhesion. Available in stores and online at clear.com. That is X-L-E-A-R.com. Change in the world one person at a time. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. We know that if America fails, the world will fail. It is incumbent upon us to carry the torch for liberty. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. So I'm back with data analyst Dr. John McClain. He was an expert reviewer on a couple of the IPCC climate assessment reports. So John, I was hoping you could share with our audience what sort of experience you had as an expert reviewer for the IPCC. Did you find them really credible and and really interested in what you had to say, or or were they maybe not quite so perfect? Well, the IPCC's charter tells it to investigate and report on the human influence on climate, Mm -hmm. and it does that to the letter. A lot of people are mistaken. They, They seem to think it's an impartial view of what's happening with climate and weather. It's not. It, it's only focused on the human influence on it. Mm-hmm. So everything they say is aligned towards that. I, I think it was Roger Pelkey Jr. recently said there are, there are 25 papers on extreme weather events around the world uh, were published before the latest IPCC report. They ignored 24 of them that said there was no evidence of any um, human influence or change in extreme weather events, and they cited the one that did. 
That was the only one oh, they mentioned. <laughs> like that's got to be the ultimate cherry picking. <laughs> oh, absolutely. But yeah, the, the whole organization exists only to sell this idea from UN agencies. It does a science oh. side and the UNF, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change is the political arm that sells that uh -huh. same idea. Yeah, I understood that the IPCC came first and its initial mandate before the uh, FCCC was created actually did make sense. But then when the FCCC, the Framework Convention, which as you say is a political arm, when it was created, the IPCC's job then became to support the political arm to support the FCCC. So at that point, I guess that's when the corruption started, eh? I, honestly, I don't know what the original chart of the IPCC was. I think it was, even then, to report on the human influence. But you were quite mm -hmm. right in saying that once the UNFCCC was created, the IPCC was instructed to support it. Mm, yeah, and only to consider evidence to support that the suspect namely us and our emissions, are guilty while ignoring all the rest. <laughs> well, as soon as the UNFCCC was created, it started saying that carbon dioxide emissions were a huge problem. It had absolutely uh -huh. zero evidence to support it. It had a theory, but that's all it had. And that theory says that, we, that carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas. We put more, air, more into the atmosphere, it's going to cause warming. And it's a very basic form. It's correct, but it doesn't say how much warming. Now, there's yeah, a heck of yeah. a difference between if it's causing 0.1 of a degree of warming or five degrees of warming. Yeah. But no, yeah. no one seems to think about that. Well, you know, I often see these polls that say, you know, scientists agree that we're causing global warming. And to which I say, well, so what? I mean, is it, as you say, a tenth of a degree or five degrees? And to me, the real question they should be asking scientists, and I guess in a way scientists can't really answer this, is, is the warming that we're causing sufficient to be worth restructuring our entire energy infrastructure to try to avoid? Now, of course, that would involve more than just science. That would involve economics and, and energy studies and all sorts of things. But I find that most of the polls really don't ask the right question, do they? Um, that, that's right, Tom. And no one seems to ever do a cost-benefit analysis on all of this. Yeah, we spend trillions of dollars to avoid a fraction of a degree of warming, and we've destroyed national economies. I, it just just gets ridiculous. Yeah. Well, Lord Monkton actually did a, a paper. I think it was a fifty-to-one ratio between the benefits of trying to adapt to climate change versus trying to change it. It was 50 times more damaging, more expensive um, to actually try to stop climate change than to simply adapt to it. And, and surely that is the, the main message is that, yeah, of course, we should adapt to climate change and communities and societies that didn't do that had lots of troubles and sometimes they're no longer with us. So it sounds to me like they're just simply trying to boost, the IPCC are just trying to boost the idea that we have to stop it instead of adapt to it. Would you say that's um, correct? Uh, Tom, two things. From the even the very early days of the IPCC, it was claiming that it would be cheaper to stop emissions now than to adapt to climate change later or to deal with the problem later. They really had no idea. The, the, it was a figure they made up. It was a claim they made without any evidence at all, without any proper analysis. And what Lord Monkton is saying about adaptation is something that Bob Carter used to say years ago. 
he would say we need to uh, make ourselves uh, more resilient to whatever climate we get. It doesn't matter if it's hotter or colder, wetter or drier, we need to make sure that we can cope with that kind of climate. Yeah, and yet we're making ourselves we're making ourselves weaker by being less able to adapt to climate change because our energy sources are becoming more and more flimsy. Our energy sources are becoming more flimsy, but we're also focusing only one of those points that I mentioned: the wetter, drier, hotter, colder. We're only looking at the hotter. Yeah, um, which is yeah, crazy exactly. because, yeah. Um, well, it's interesting. The Lancet had a paper in which they showed with a massive study across many nations and millions of people that 20 times more people died from the cold than from the heat. And you'd laugh, John, here in Ottawa, which is one of the coldest capital cities in the world, they're only focused on preparing for warming. And they say nothing about preparing for cooling, which is, which is hugely more dangerous, especially for a city like Ottawa. Like, surely that's totally misguided. Oh, absolutely, Tom. I, I just wish somebody um, did a, a study of uh, fatalities from the cold and worked and calculated how many extra deaths we get per degree as it gets oh, colder. Yeah. yeah. We would go the other way and say, look, if it's one degree warmer, we will save all these lives. It's, yeah. it's simple. And yeah. as the, um, the Lancet study showed, fewer people die from the heat. Because we can generally find somewhere to get shelter out of the heat. Even if we don't have air yeah. conditioning, we can get away from the uh, direct heat. Yeah, but when it's minus 30 in Ottawa and our power fails, I mean, that is fatal for many people. So can you tell us, how does the expert reviewer process work? I mean, do they send you a whole lot of stuff and they say, okay, we want to hear back in a month? Or what do they do? Well, they send us um, uh, draft copies. Uh, I was looking at the what's called the second order draft. It's the second version. The um, I, th I think they sent me a link to, to ask me to download all that, and they sent me a, a huge Excel spreadsheet to fill out with all my comments. Mm -hmm. um, and they just want the details of which line and how to find the, the comment. And often they'll ask for evidence. If they don't like what you've seen and you haven't provided enough evidence, they'll say, oh, the the reviewer doesn't provide evidence. So there's this dismissive comment like that, regardless of how well-known something is, they'll um, dodge around it that way. But the um, the whole thing about the review process is that it is different to a journal review. If you submit a, a scientific paper, it goes out to reviewers, they'll request changes, and you are asked to make those changes and resubmit your paper. So changes are compulsory. The IPCC process is more like a feedback of how to polish their message, how to improve the way they're saying it. Because if mm. they've already decided what the message will be, all they want is some feedback on how to make it better. Yeah. Um, it's just a ridiculous situation. Did they, did they take your edits and your suggestion for changes? Uh, very rarely. <laughs> Probably out of every 100 comments I would make, I might have something changed maybe 10 times. Oh, wow. Uh, so 90% 90, 90 of the comments they're just not using or not accepting. They would probably sort of reword what I said. Or I have made comments and the response from the IPCC authors would say, oh, the, the whole section has been rewritten. 
Mm. But there is no opportunity for me to review what they've what they've changed things to. And that's unlike a journal as well. If you resubmit, it goes back through the review process again. Yeah, I get the impression then that the reason they're doing the review is so they can boast when they release the report that there's been thousands of reviewers. But is that like really what they're doing? They're just trying to build up the number of reviewers so that they can boast about how their report's been reviewed by so many people? They'll, they'll certainly boast about the number of reviewers, you know, but, but they won't tell you so much is how few comments some of those people made. Oh, I've, I've analysed this, and you find that a lot of re reviewers will make and a handful of comments on one chapter, uh -huh, and that's uh -huh. it. They don't approve but, the whole report. No, the, the, um, no one's under any obligation to review the entire report. Only masochists like myself do that kind of thing. <laughs> and, if, and if we have time, because it is a very time-consuming thing, but an awful lot of these people say very little about it, and they, they might even say, that something is expressed well, and that's it. Huh? So yeah. it's feedback. It's not review process in the normal sense. So if they were being honest, they'd say we've had you know X thousand reviewers and we've rejected 90% of the comments. <laughs> that wouldn't sound so good for a PR uh, press release. <laughs> no, it certainly wouldn't. And Tommy might have noticed they usually don't re release the review comments until – I don't know, four or six months after the report has been published. Oh. So after it's become established in the public's mind and governments have taken notice of it, only then will they release re uh, reviewers' comments, and usually they don't even mention that they've been published. You have to go looking for them. Wow. So in other words, the politicians get all excited, the media gets all excited, and then six months later, we're told that many reviewers, we're not actually told, it's there. I mean, people can find it, but we're not, it's not, no announcement made that people like you had 90% of your comments uh, ignored. That's right. Yeah. They um, seem to deliberately hide that. Uh, well, you know, one basic question I think people are going to step back and say, well, considering how bad the data is and how the UN IPCC ignore so many comments. I mean, can you really say that the world is warming at all, let's say, since the year 2000 or, or even since 1900? Well, I think it has warmed a bit since about 1976. Oh, okay. Before that, I'm not so sure at all because the um, data quality and the adjustments to the temperature data, you've seen the adjustments where the early data is often lowered it's because of the method they use, which I think is faulty about how they adjust their temperature data. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, I, I, after 1976, we had this strange thing called the Great Pacific Climate Shift. We suddenly oh, yeah. started getting a lot more El Nino events. Oh. We, we hadn't had many in the previous 15 or 20 years. And then in the next 20 years after that, we had uh, it's at least three, maybe four, and these were quite, quite strong events or, or quite sustained events. So there's some kind of climate change went on. No one seems to be able to identify what it was, though I do wonder how many people are looking at it since all the money is the uh, in research that supports the IPCC's opinion. Uh -huh. Now, I think it might have warmed since then, but even now, temperature data gets adjusted. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so, so you feel, in general, it's warm since 1976, but before that you just are not confident. Um, I'm not confident before that. I 
also don't know how much warming has taken place, and I don't think anybody does because their temperature data is unreliable. And by the way, back in 1945, which, okay, not that long, 30 years earlier from 1976, September 1945, the coverage of the data, temperature data in the Southern Hemisphere for the sea surface temperatures, it was down at 12% of the Southern Hemisphere. So it's one-eighth of it. (laughs) Normally it's up around 70% because there's an awful lot of ocean in the Southern Hemisphere. Yeah, but this this was just at the uh, about the end of the war, September forty five. Uh-huh. So it was tiny, and they're saying, "Oh yes, the um, the average over this year was this." Well, I'm, I look at it and say, "Well, in some months it was down at twelve percent, in other yeah. months it was eighteen percent. That's fifty yeah. percent more. You're getting data from different places at different times." But it sounds to me then, you know, they constantly say dangerous warming has occurred over the twentieth century, but. The truth is they don't really know how much has occurred at all. So how can they say it's dangerous if they don't know how much it is? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, I, I completely agree with you. But this is what we're hearing all the time. They're saying it's dangerous warming. Mm-hmm. But they do not know with any accuracy at all what the temperatures were like, even 1950, let alone 1900 or 1850. Yeah. Or yeah. um, their fabulous pre-industrial time. Which, by the way, the latest IPCC report now tells us there's a difference between the 1850-1900 average and a real pre-industrial. Uh-huh. You know how they worked that out? It was yeah. climate models, oh, none of which has it. ever been proven to be accurate. Yeah. You know, it sounds to me, John, like a lot of this is like saying there's a dangerous animal in my backyard tonight, but I don't know if it's a mouse or a dinosaur. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I'm going to get out all my guns and everything, and I'm going to go out and fight it. You know, I'm going to invest in all kinds of you know animal fighting tools, but I don't know if it's a mouse or a dinosaur. <laughs> Tom, this goes all the way back to the IPCC's first report. It's saying there's a we're expected to almost panic about this warming problem, but they can't tell us how much warming there has been. Or how much warming there will be. Yeah. But nonetheless, we would be expected to panic. Yeah. Now, that business of how much there will be. Now, that's a really interesting point because you get scientists like Dr. Abdusamatov from the Polkovo Observatory in Russia who studies the sun. And he says that we're headed for a grand solar minimum around 2060 and that we'll see gradual cooling until that occurs. Um, And that would overwhelm, he says, any warming from CO2 or other greenhouse gases. I mean, do you think he's completely off his rocker or do you think he might be right? Well, he he might be right. And what I like about his idea is that it's something that can be tested. Yeah. A lot of the uh, climate models are talking about temperatures in the year 2100. (laughs) Most of us who think about these things won't be alive by then. But something that can be tested is a great idea. Uh-huh. We can uh-huh. see if it's correct. It's something you can't do with a lot of the climate modeling. Yeah. Well, I understand that the grand solar minimum is when various cycles in the sun all hit rock bottom at the same time. And the last time that occurred apparently was during the Little Ice Age in the 1700s when it was incredibly cold. And so he's basing it not just on theories about the future. He's actually looking at history. And uh, surely that's what they should be doing more than anything, is looking at what really happened in the past. 
Well, they, they should be, but they don't. They prefer to look at their models, and if they have data that conflicts with the model, they will say the model is correct and the data is wrong. Uh, maybe not, maybe not in those few words, but that is basically the, the kind of argument they're using. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. Commander Morgan, I can't remember his first name, but he was a Navy commander in the Canadian Navy, and he was an expert on ocean temperatures. And he gave a presentation. Uh, he's passed away now, but he gave it a few years ago, in which he showed certain cooling in the North Atlantic. And a young modeler came up to him and said, "Well, you know." Your data must be wrong because my model shows that it's warming. <laughs> yeah. Commander Morgan looked at it and said, "Well, I'm actually measuring real-world data. What's actually happening, you know?" <laughs> so, I mean, this idea of putting faith in models above data like that doesn't make any sense, does it? No, Tom. It doesn't make any sense at all. But the whole climate um, debate, especially from the alarmist side is made up of some truths, some half-truths, a lot of distortions, a lot of exaggerations, omissions of significant information, and sometimes just outright lies. Oh, yeah. And, and, and the problem is trying to filter all this out and work out just which one applies when. <laughs> yeah. And I should tell you a story quickly about somebody who wouldn't want me to mention his name because he had threats against both him and his family for publishing things that were not agreeing with political correctness. And what happened is he worked for a Canadian government department, and this will not narrow his actually his identity down, so that's good. And he found that the North Atlantic was cooling, and it wasn't Commander Morgan, but was another expert on this area. And he submitted his paper to his director to then submit to the journal, but he never heard back from the director. And every time he saw the director in the hall, he'd quickly run the other direction. So finally, he cornered him in the washroom and he said, you know, are you going to submit my paper to be published? And the director patted him on the shoulder and said, well, you've had lots of paper published, right? I mean, you wouldn't mind if we didn't submit this one. And my friend said, well, yes, I would. I spent months working on it and it shows that the North Atlantic is cooling. And the director said, well, you realize the minister the head of the department said the opposite. So we really don't want to see your work published. So I think there are probably people within the government who know that a lot of this is bogus, but they're being suppressed too. Oh, Tom, I, I certainly agree with you. Um, mm -hmm. the, the whole problem is that you've now got scientists who are trying to protect their income streams and their reputations, regardless of whether they deserve the reputations or not. you got the employers or bodies such as universities and research institutes that employ those um, scientists and receive that funding. You've got politicians who say or do anything to, uh, to seek favour with voters. Mm -hmm. uh, now you've got the whole renewables industry that wouldn't survive without subsidies and they want to keep the whole thing rolling along because yeah. they're quite happy collecting the money. You've got the media because if a media outlet suddenly turned around and said, oh, we've been wrong for the last 20 years. There really is no uh, threat from climate change. The public might then start to wonder what else the media has been wrong about. Yeah. And then you've got a whole lot of people who are basically using the climate issue to um, undermine uh, the whole political system of lots of different countries. So you've got yeah. all these different vested interests. Uh, it's not a conspiracy, but they're all trying to push the whole thing along and keep it rolling because they have some way that they're gaining from it. 
Yeah. That's what we've got to be very careful of. Yeah. Lots and lots of ulterior motives. And, you know, I should point out also that some scientists like Dr. Tim Ball and this scientist whose name I can't mention because his family did get actual threats. They've had death threats. You know, Tim Ball, had, and he had no qualms about actually admitting this. He had five serious death threats, which are even involving police. You know, so, I mean, the, the our opponents are ruthless. You know, some of the environmental activists have actually threatened to kill scientists and their families for publishing what is true. So, you know, you're very brave. And I, I understand, are you working on a new book or what's going on next? <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking about a new book, Tom, but... <laughs> There are so many areas of climate that I would love to get in and expose, and or I should say analyze. I shouldn't prejudge it. I should say get in and analyze properly, because yeah. I think I'll be exposing errors in those areas. Um, mm-hmm. Something I discovered when I did that audit of the uh, heavy temperature data: there is no standard way of adjusting the temperatures. Ah. You know, temperature adjustment is not so much an adjustment as using the old temperature to estimate what would have been recorded if we'd used the say the current equipment in the current location. It's not an adjustment, so, as I said, as, as much as an estimate. I think the, the WMO, the World Meteorological Organization, had a document listing eight different methods, and I found even other methods that are being used. So there's ah. no standard way to do this. And what I would like to do sometime is actually look at each of those, apply them, and find out how different the answers are for each method. Yeah, because- yeah. And it sounds to me like we really should have a formal inquiry, one in which scientists from different points of view are brought in and actually, you know, reveal what they're finding and for the public to actually hear about this inquiry. Do you think that people on the IPCC side, are they going to allow a full-blown public inquiry, do you think? I, I think there'll be a lot of opposition from the IPCC, from UN agencies like the WMO and the United Nations Environment Program. These are the two sponsoring bodies of the IPCC. Yeah. And I think when you've got the UN Secretary General coming out and making ridiculous comments about global boiling, <laughs> uh, yeah. the, the UN is going to put pressure on governments to try to stop that kind of thing. It's something that was talked about when um, Trump was president, the red team, blue team approach, which yeah. is often used in de- defence to, to probe each other's arguments, to find out where the problems are, yeah. uh, to find out where the flaws in those arguments are. And, yeah, uh, and basically... Until, ex- yeah, until ex- they do that, I don't think we can put any confidence or faith in what they're saying at all. Well, I, I agree with you, because we, the public is not told the thinking of people who were sceptical, and there are an awful lot of people who are sceptical about the extent of human influence on climate. Mm-hmm. Whether it's a mouse or a dinosaur, it's kind of important. <laughs> yeah, most scientists would agree there is some human influence, and it's a bit more than just the urban heat island effect that we know about. If you build a city, the temperatures are going to be warmer. Yeah. The, the scientists generally agree that adding carbon dioxide will cause some warming. But a lot of this has a qualifier, all other things being equal. Uh-huh. But maybe the atmosphere changes when it, with that little bit of warming, that extra carbon dioxide, and it reduces the impact. So we can calculate it, but maybe it's less. Uh, IPCC uh, and uh, various scientists argue that it will be more because it will cause more evaporation 
and water vapor is a greenhouse gas. It'll get warmer. It's a negative feedback. It's helping keep the earth from having a runaway disaster. Yeah, you, you would think that if, if the whole climate system was so carefully balanced that anything that threw it out of balance in the last 4.5 billion years could cause runaway warming and, yeah, we, we wouldn't be living here now. It just yeah, would be too hot. Exactly. Yeah, well, that's right. The earth is well designed. Well, we, we have to end now, John, and I'd love to get you back at some point in the future because there's so much more I want to ask you. But that was fun, John, talking about all of this corruption really in the data and the lack of real solid data to make these decisions. So Dr. John McLean has been my guest today. He was an expert reviewer of the IPCC 2013 Climate Assessment Report and also a working group one component of the IPCC AR6. So thanks for being on the show, John. My pleasure, Tom. Good to talk to you. Okay, that's great. So this is Tom Harris with my guest, Dr. John McLean, signing out from the other side of the story.